So friends, uh, turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. I was informed last week, I said 1 Peter sometimes and 2 Peter sometimes. And so um, uh, thank you for the correction. I received that well. Um, but uh, so if you, we're in 2 Peter. So if I say 1 Peter on accident, please forgive me and know that we're in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, and for our reading, I would like to read the whole chapter. Even though we did um, the first half of the chapter last week, I want to capture really the flow of thought of what Peter is, uh, what is deeply concerning to Peter and what should be deeply concerning to us. And then I have a few reflections on it as we walk through the second half of it. So 2 Peter chapter 2. And by way of reminder, this is written by, by Peter, the kind of the chief disciple, the chief of the apostles, the followed Jesus for, for many years, was called by Jesus to be his follower. Uh, we will learn soon that this is the end. He's nearing the end of his life. We know that he was, um, he was martyred for the faith. The church tradition has it that he was crucified. He requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel... It would be worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Savior was crucified. And again, that's not in the Bible. That's just church tradition. But we know that he's coming to the end of his life, and he's desperate to remind these churches of some very important things. And these are the important things. Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he, is, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones whereas angels though greater in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the lord but these like irrational animals creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes 
reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These, these false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sexual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state become, has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never, to have, uh, excuse me, for it would have been better for them to have known the way of righteous, the way of righteousness, than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So just to recap where we, what we looked at last week, we looked at um, the dangers of uh, false teachers. And uh, here were the eight things that we looked at last week. The determination of the false teachers. They've been around from the end of time, just as they plagued Old Testament Israel through false prophets. They're plaguing the New Testament church. And then we saw a description of them, of their... Uh, de depravity of the false teachers in 2 and 3. We saw in particular the sensuality, their greed, and their despising of authority. And then uh, last week I had said, and he's going to get into greater detail of the description of their depravity, and that's what we're going to look at here in a moment. But of their deception, their destructive results of the, frost, the false teachers, uh, we looked at the destiny of the false teachers and how deliverance, uh, there is deliverance for false teachers, from false teachers for the faithful. And that discernment is needed. And there is a call to distance ourselves from the false teachers. Today we're looking at the character and consequences of these false teachers. Let me look at the character. Now you notice this. Uh, there was kind of these rapid fire, uh, almost just uh, uh, like a staccato-like denunciations of who they were. I'd like to, I know we just read it, but I would like to kind of go through a couple of them. And to uh, just say them again, just to hear them again, and then make a few comments for each one. Notice at the second half of verse 10, bold. Okay? Now, this is not the good kind of bold. This is a bad kind of bold. This is bold, not as in the courageous, we're going to go and um, do what is valiant and virtuous, 
No, this is a boldness that is arrogant and audacious. They are willful, not willful in the terms of being self-determined de- self and, and independent and self-disciplined. No, this is willful stubbornness. And then notice what it says in the rest of verse 10. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, for that, I do invite you to turn a couple of pages to Jude. Jude is remarkably similar to 2 Peter. Some even say that they, you know, they maybe even Peter either borrowed from Jude or Jude borrowed from, from Peter. But as you read through uh, 2 Peter and Jude, you will notice a great deal of similarities. But it's interesting what he says here in verse 10 about blaspheming the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord. What does that mean? I think there's a little, little background here to Jude. Notice verses 8 and 9, where Jude writes, Yet in like manner, these people, because he's also dealing with false teachers in the church, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. There he says the very same thing. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, that might help give a little background and a clarity there. Jude references this, this weird incident with Michael contending with the devil about the body of, of Moses. Now, it's truth be told, that, is, that description does not occur in the Old Testament. It's very likely that, uh, that Jude is referencing um, an apocryphal Jewish work called the Assumption of Moses. Okay? And it's helpful for believers to know this. When you see this, a quote here in the New Testament, and you're like, wait a second, it's not in the Old Testament. Where is that? They're actually quote, quoting an extra-biblical source here. Now, that's not to say that that source itself is inspired by God in some way. But what is inspired by God is what Jude wrote, even though he took it from this passage in Jude. And the tradition is basically like it said, that the archangel Michael was contending with the body of Moses in some way. And drawing on that Jewish apocryphal example, he's saying, now it's interesting what Michael archangel did. He didn't uh, blaspheme the Lord himself. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So what Peter is saying here is that these guys are so bold and willful and arrogant, they will blaspheme glorious ones. And he says, even angels wouldn't even dare to do that kind of thing. That's the point. Speaking of, of blasphemy, that is a characteristic of these false teachers that occurs three times. Notice it's in verse uh, I believe it starts in verse 11. Yes, verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13. He uses the different forms for blasphemy, which is to defame, to revile, to slander, and it can be used for other persons. But in this case, it's using uh, defame and defile and slandering God. Or to speak of God with ir- irreverence. Or to speak of the, def- the divine things with irreverence. This is what the false teachers do. 
They are blaspheming. Notice verse 12. But these like irrational animals. Notice the dehumanizing. (laughs) A dehumanizing nature of these false teachers. And I don't mean Peter is dehumanizing them. They are self-dehumanizing. Their false teaching and rebellion against God is so extreme that they are turning almost animal-like, acting on just base impulses and not using their thought properly. These are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Imagine that. False teachers in the church spouting things with complete ignorance. Notice verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. This is another interesting thing we saw about the false teachers. Remember their sensuality was one of the three depravities of them. They revel in the daytime. I mean, if you're going to revel, you revel at night. Right? Not supposed to revel at all, but usually it's done at nighttime. These guys are so bold about it, they're reveling during the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, Peter says. They're reveling in, not only their revelings in the daytime, they revel in deception. I think secretly they, they kind of, they know what they're doing. And all they're doing this, even while they're feasting with you, and this is probably a reference to the Lord's Supper, even as they're here gathering in among the church and feasting with you, they're doing these kinds of things. Eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. And then he notice what he says in verses 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. Now here is an Old Testament story that he's referencing. They're following the way of Balaam in verse 15. You can see the story about Balaam. You know about Balaam and the, the, the donkey that speaks to him. Peter is referencing that and he's kind of saying what, what Balaam was then as kind of the false, a false prophet serves as an example and as a model. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved, who, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. Even a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. One commentator put it this way. He said that Balaam represented, quote, represented as the archetype of false teachers of the Christian church who pervert the truth of the gospel in the interests of personal gain. And under the guise of Christian liberty, advocate compromise with the world. Okay, so there's kind of a two-pronged approach of being following, false teachers following the pattern of, of Balaam. The one is they pervert the truth of gospel for their own personal gain. And the other one is to advocate uh, liberty and to compromise with the world. Notice that Balaam is used kind of in that metaphorical sense in the letters to the churches, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, 14, to the church at Pergamum. 
And to the angel of Perg- to the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, church of Pergamum. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is the other half. This is what they do. Not only do they revel in the daytime, not only are they ignorant in their blasphemy of various things, they get their followers to do that too. And what a... What a damning thing the other half of verse 14 is. They entice unsteady souls. That's why he says, accursed children. Notice verse 17 and 18. They are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. We've had plenty of rain this summer, but I remember the last two summers... um, where we had weeks and weeks and weeks without any kind of rain. Do you remember this? Like we didn't have to mow our yard for like six weeks, which was kind of nice. Um, you know, except for the, 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 really, the really durable grasses that grew this tall and everything else turned yellow, right? And I remember just kind of, we didn't have the sprinkler system uh, working at that time. And the reason why we have so much rain this year is because we got the sprinkler system fixed. Okay? That's why we got rain. Now we haven't used the sprinkler system. But we, were, we didn't have the sprinkler system, so we were longing for rain. And we'd see clouds coming, and Janet would see it on the radar, and she would be really excited. And then it would miss us, right? And it would be, you cursed clouds! Because the clouds would roll by, and there'd be no rain. There's no substance. You're looking at it thinking, yeah, it's going to provide me what I need. And it doesn't. That's false teaching. It has the appearance that it's going to come and bring you everything that you need. But it's waterless. Like mists driven by a storm. This is is the description of the character of false teachers in the church. But here's some consequences for them. First, their influence on their followers. I just read the one, verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. Notice verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And then verse 19. They, these false teachers, promise their followers freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. And these false teachers are overcome with all sorts of sensuality, deception, deceit, lying, blasphemies. And yet they pronounce freedom. You have freedom in Christ. And what this ends up doing is just causing destruction 
on them, which is the second consequence. There's the consequence of what it is, the effect that it has on their followers, the influence it has, but the other consequence is their own personal destruction. To be caught and destroyed, verse 12. Will also be destroyed in their destruction, verse 12. Suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing, verse 13. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them, verse 17. And then lastly, let's look at the apostasy of these false teachers. Look at verses 20 through 22. For if after they have escaped the the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, a dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Okay, so here, think, think with me for a moment about the false teachers' personal story, if we could kind of imagine. They were probably, grew up in a very pagan environment. They were probably engaged in the worship of of idols that were common at the time. If we assume that what Peter is writing here in 2 Peter is the same group that he's writing to in 1 Peter, and so those were the the elect exiles that were uh, scattered out throughout Bithynia and um, Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia. Remember all those areas, which is modern-day Turkey. So assuming... And that was being very much under control of the Roman emperor worship and the imperial religious cults. They probably grew up and were very experienced with that. So they were pagans. They were engaged in worship of idols. So they were sinners. But they happened to hear the message of the gospel. Because how else could they get so close to the orbit of the church to be false teachers in the church? And they heard this gospel, that God created man in his own image to glorify him. But man sinned against God, and the wages of that sin is death. And God promised to judge that sin, but also promised to send a Savior to rescue people from their sin. And that Jesus is that Savior, the eternal Son of God, who became human flesh who lived a perfect life under the law, righteously, a perfect Jew, yet died on a cross, not for his own punishment, but for the punishment of the sins of all who would put their faith in him. He took a punishment he didn't deserve, but we did. And then he promises eternal life to all those who would turn to him as Lord and Savior. And this Jesus is coming again to rescue his people and to judge those who steadfastly remain in rebellion against him and against God. Okay? That's what they heard. And these guys heard that message and said, yes, at some level, said, yes. But then somewhere along the line, they started 
to become teachers in the church and evangelists in the church. Only they didn't remain in the teaching of the apostles that they had received. They deviated from those. They were adding their own little twist and their own little spin on it. And they ended up distorting doctrines and twisting scriptures. And they were probably confronted by the apostles or other pastors and leaders of the church, but spurned their correction. Said, no, no, the Lord has revealed this to me. They continued headstrong in their teaching and started to amass for themselves a following. And it was clearly a mix of Christian terms and Christian concepts that they had originally embraced but had incorporated significant and severe twists and distortions to it. So it sounds good, particularly to a new believers, young believers, who may have not been trained in the scriptures to, to recognize the error who didn't understand the difference on what they were teaching. So Peter and others now have to warn the churches about these guys spreading this disinformation in the churches. So think about this. According to, to Peter and according to God, it would have been better for these guys to have never heard the gospel. Did you catch what he said there? Last week I had said that false teachers were as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Wait, Sodom and Gomorrah, that the Lord rained down fiery sulfur? What do you mean? False teacher is as bad as that? Yes, that's what, that's what Peter was saying last week. Now Peter says that it actually would have been better that they never heard the gospel. Think about that. The good news that brings salvation to people's souls. The good news that offers you forgiveness of your sins. The good news that rescues you from eternal conscious torment in hell. The good news that brings you into right fellowship and restoration with your God. That good news, Peter says, it had been better had they never heard it. Did to have heard it and walk away from it and then misrepresent it. Let me read it again. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, they, they were delivered from it and now they fall right back into it and then are grasping at people to bring them in with them. They are entangled in them again and overcome. Peter then quotes from Jesus here, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It had been better had they never heard the gospel. Quoting directly from, from Jesus there. And this quote is actually from Matthew chapter 12, verse 45. And this is a, a scenario in which it's a man, Jesus tells a, kind of the story about a man who had an unclean spirit that was cast out. And the, this unclean spirit went around into the wilderness and stuff and then ended up coming back and then bringing seven others with him. So now you have eight total, right? And that's where Jesus said the, the last state is worse than the first. 
So too, according to Peter, to Peter here, it is so bad for a false teacher to depart from the sound pattern, the pattern of sound words of the gospel, the, the apostles' teaching, that it would have been better for them to have never heard the gospel and professed faith at all. Verse 21 makes this clear. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Think about that. Now, usually a question that comes up about this, when you see false teachers, and, and I've, heard, I've been asked this question about p- particular individuals who end up going down this path of false teaching, and usually the question is, well, were they ever a Christian? You know, did, and then it brings up the issue like, well, were they genuinely saved? And then they lost their salvation. Or were they never saved to begin with? Did it only like look and appear like it? I have an answer to that. Some say, yes, you can be genuinely saved. I don't agree with that. I don't think that you can. Those, there are those who seem to be saved but do not persevere to the end. And Jesus is warned about that. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. I think the scriptures are clear on that in a number of places. But either way, either way, the point is, is that those who do not persevere faithfully, faithfully to Christ until the end, those who uh, do not persevere faithfully to the trustworthy word as taught until the end, those who do not steadfastly hold to sound doctrine until the end will not be saved. This is clear. Either view you take. So why is it so bad for false prophets? I said this, I tweeted this this week, like God hates false teachers. Wait, hold on, God is love. God doesn't hate anyone. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. God, and this is what I tweeted, God really, really, really hates false teachers. How could you read 2 Peter chapter 2 and not think that? Accursed children. Why? Because they don't just destroy their own souls. That's why. They destroy souls. They destroy other people's souls. That's why. I think of them, Jesus' words is really clear. When Jesus says this, Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes these little ones, and don't think just little children, I think in the context there, but, but think metaphorically little ones too. New to the faith as well. Think Whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, if he had a great millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's why God hates false teachers because they destroy souls. I assume that Peter and the apostles confronted all these false teachers, and I assumed that all of these false teachers rejected Peter and the apostles and started to go on their own way. Hence, the despised authority in verse 10, right? 
So, per, he, so Peter perhaps thinks that, you know, my best strategy and all of our strategy at this point is, is two-pronged. We could go and try to correct the false teachers. And if that doesn't work, and they're far too gone in their apostasy, then what we have to do then is we have to at least protect the souls. His attention is now directed to those who are in severe danger of joining the false teachers. It's a serious warning to the followers in the hopes that it will be effective in preventing them from sharing their fate. Maybe he had hope for the false teachers, but at the very least he had hope for his followers, and that's why he's right. That's why he wrote what he did. He wants them to make sure that they they cling to Christ and his gospel, that their souls will not be destroyed. And what is the truth? What is this gospel? Let me just kind of, for us to recap, this is what the false teachers were distorting. 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes to the Corinthians and he wants to remind them of this. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For if I delivered, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared. And he goes on to explain to all of the people to whom Jesus appeared. Notice these other passages. It's not listed here, but notice this gospel that goes out, that salvation through faith in Christ and turning from your sins Jesus says to the two guys on the road to Emmaus that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 15, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Acts 16, 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 1, 16, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Later he says, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Second Corinthians, for, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In Ephesians, 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. I could go through dozens of these, but this, you get the example here. And false teachers in various ways will distort this. And I thought, uh, I thought last week, thinking ahead to this sermon, I thought, I'll just name names. Um, I, I don't think I'll do that. Uh, Rachel reminded me of a Shy Lin song called False Teachers. So go to your music service and type in Shy Lin and False Teachers. He lists them all there. And I think that's a, that's a good place to start. And let, are we, does he miss any? Oh, he misses some. Okay. But let me just kind of give a broad broad sweeps. Anybody who undermines this, the truth of the confidence and the inerrancy and the uh, infallibility of the scriptures. Anybody who would undermine uh, the nature of who God is by leveraging maybe one attribute over and against the other. God's love. Therefore, he can't be wrathful. No. <laughs> God is one. Or to alter the... Um, to, to, uh, to undermine the state of, of what man is. Say man's basically good. He's just kind of gone off the charts a little bit. And so Jesus came to kind of show you this is kind of the path to take. And so if you just start taking it now and you kind of move back. But, but man's basically good. He's just kind of, kind of off. That's false. Or twists some things about what Jesus' ministry was really all about. He's, he's an example for us to follow. Did he die under the wrath of God for sin as a substitute and atoning sacrifice for others? No, no, the false teachers say. No, Jesus just taught to come and bring the kingdom of God to the world. Or maybe like some uh, of the prosperity gospel teachers teach you that God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And that basically, that's the gist of it I think a lot of people get, but what they don't, what they don't tell you until you get in there a little bit uh, uh, right away is that they say, basically, you have the power to speak health and wealth into your life because you are a little God. And you just don't recognize the power that you have just to speak things into existence. Because God spoke things to existence, so therefore you can't. These are false. Prosperity churches, liberal theology, and I would say some other things that are coming down the horizon that we really need to be made aware of. I think critical race theory in the church, that is false teaching. And to the extent that there's pastors, even in evangelical churches, that are embracing that, they are on the verge of becoming uh, full-blown false teachers. That is a direct threat against the gospel. There's many, many others. Uh, last week in our conversations, uh, some people, uh, the Zostras came and asked some questions, and uh, I believe it was uh, Caleb. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it was, um, uh, it was Gabe said, hey, now can you define liberal theology? And I was like, ah, oh, well, 
you could read this book or read this article. And then I remembered a quote you know, from like the 1930s that summarized it really well. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's, I am, well, that's, that's a start. That's a good start. God without wrath. Changing the very nature and character of God. Brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. No, not an atoning sacrifice. Friends, mark and avoid the false teachers because they are out to destroy people's souls. Sometimes I think that we can be kind of apathetic a little about uh, the danger that false teachers pose. We've got friends and family that post video clips from, from clear false teachers on Facebook or on their socials. And we kind of go, oh, I don't want to deal with that. Okay, that's them. That's their own thing. And I know there's some, there, there's landmines to navigate when you're dealing with family and friends about these things. But here's the fact of the matter is. God hates false teachers because he loves his people. God hates those who would seek to destroy souls. So friends, I encourage you, if you see it, I pray for your courage and your boldness to stand and to point out error. Might need delicate, tricky, I get it. But it's hard to not read 2 Peter chapter 2 and realize the extreme danger that they pose to the souls of people. May we be bold enough to know the gospel ourselves and then to carefully and with wisdom and discernment to call it out when we see it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that you are the God of all truth. That you have given us your word and every bit of it is true. God, we thank you that it has been preserved for us. Help us to know the truth so that we could recognize error. And help us to at the very least, if we cannot persuade the false teacher, that we can at least rescue the sheep that might be in that wolf's mouth. Give us wisdom and discernment to that end. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.